The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. ready as you'll ever be probably all right so here we are today noggins and neurons listeners we are back with the duville university occupational therapy student segments and today i am here with madison hannah and their professor tracy And I will let them introduce themselves, and then we'll get into a really exciting conversation. Madison? Um, Hi, everyone. So my name is Madison. I'm a third-year MS occupational therapy student at Duville. I'm originally from the Buffalo area. I've completed my level two fieldwork at a community-based setting for individuals with Down syndrome, a neuro-based outpatient clinic, and an acute care hospital. Wow. Were you local or did you travel? I was local for all of them. Excellent. Before we move on, Madison, how did you become interested in occupational therapy? 
Um, I actually didn't know what OT was until I was a sophomore in undergrad. And one of my friends was like, I think I'm going to change my major to OT. And I was like, what's that? So I looked into it more. And ever since then, I just loved it. Mm. It's interesting how a lot of us never heard of it and ended up here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, one more question. Do you have any hobbies or interests besides school? I do. I have a very interesting hobby. I actually compete in bodybuilding shows. Um, yeah. It, so I've done two so far, so I'm still kind of new at it. But yeah, I competed in the bikini division for bodybuilding. You know, you might not even believe this, but when I went to DUL, one of my fellow students did that. I I believe it because I think there are quite a few like OT and PT students that are interested in that, which is nice because it does give me a lot of knowledge on the um, nutritional and like exercise aspects of it. Yeah, that's a nice understanding to bring to your practice. Mm -hmm. all right Hannah you want to tell us about yourself yes absolutely so my name is Hannah Waring I'm a third year master's student um, occupational therapy student at Duville University I have a background in health and wellness promotion and I previously worked as an occupational therapy assistant in a community-based mental health setting I completed my level two field works in an outpatient clinic for children and adults and an inpatient rehab facility that specialized in stroke, brain injury, Parkinson's, and orthopedic rehabilitation. So originally, this area was something that I found a little bit intimidating due to its complexity, but through my experiences with individuals at field work, Throughout their early stages and their later stages of rehab, I was like immediately fascinated with OT and like the impact that we can have on their lives. So it was something I was drawn to. Yeah, it's interesting how things are intimidating and until we get to know them better or they can be intimidating. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, how did you get interested in occupational therapy? Okay, I'm going to tell a little secret to everybody. So Hannah and I know each other from a previous life. Yes, we do. So Debbie was actually my professor when I was going to school for occupational therapy assistant, but I kind of fell into it too, I think. Um, when I was going for my undergrad in health and wellness promotion, uh, when I was graduating, I originally thought I wanted to do physical therapy, but I was like talking to my family and people who have like experienced the healthcare system. And a lot of people had good things to say about occupational therapy. So I did some digging and I applied. That was that. I made my journey. <laughs> yes, you're on your journey. Mm -hmm. yes. And how about you? Do you have any hobbies? Yes, I do a lot of hand embroidery right now. And um, I play volleyball as much as I can. But in the wintertime, it's kind of hard in Buffalo. Yeah, it is. 
Did you do your field works locally or did you go somewhere? Did you travel? I was in Erie, Pennsylvania. Nice. Mm -hmm. Okay. And next we have Tracy. Hello, everyone. It's a privilege to be on this podcast with very accomplished individuals. I am happy to report that I have had both Madison and Hannah in several classes, and I'm very excited to be at this point in their journey where they will be graduating. Does anyone have a countdown? Oh. No, I, actually, no, I know it's too much. They're both wrinkling their noses and saying no. I'm surprised. I mean, I kind of would, you know, I would like a countdown. I'm thinking, what are we, about, about eight more weeks, maybe? Eight or nine weeks? Around Seven. Then. So, yeah. Seven. Mm -hmm. See, I knew somebody would know if I kept, if I kept poking. Very good. Very good. Oh, Tracy, you, you have a pretty big accomplishment that you've, what's the right word that you've accomplished? That's, you can't use the same word twice. You have achieved a pretty big accomplishment since last year when we recorded. Yes. Yes. I uh, have graduated with my doctor of health science from the university of Indianapolis in December. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I have, uh, you were asking about like the background and falling into occupational therapy. It was kind of decided for me. Really? I used to joke that when I was a kiddo, that um, my favorite thing to do when I was in grammar school was the fine motor cart. So it would come rolling down the hall and I was like, I want to do that. So from that time, like in first or second grade, I was all about manipulatives and doing all that for fine motor. And I was very enthralled with that. And I actually have an aunt who is a, a physical therapist. And I used to go with her and I was drawn to her colleagues down the hallway mm. in occupational therapy. So there we are. That's what brought me into our, my, our beloved profession. Excellent. Great story. All right. So are we ready to move into our topic for today? Absolutely. Where we talk about stroke rehab and the whole continuum of care and the various aspects of it that people may experience. So we have some objectives for today. Let's see if we can stick to those and accomplish those during this conversation. So one of the things that you intend to do that this, you know, Madison and Hannah are going to lead us in this conversation. So one of the things that we intend to do today is describe the continuum of care for stroke rehab to educate listeners about the differences in care and what is to be expected within each setting. And then we'll talk about the perceived barriers of stroke survivors and their care partners to service delivery and post-acute care decision-making. And the goal here is to emphasize the need for person-centered collaboration across the continuum of care. Yay. And then we, we're also going to highlight the importance of evidence-based standardized assessment and motivational strategies to enhance quality of care and improve health outcomes. Wow. So where should we start? Uh, let's start with describing the continuum of care, I think. Yeah, let's do it. So 
when Madison and I were first trying to decide what topic we wanted to cover, we pretty much decided like within the first five minutes because we both were able to really connect with it um, because I think going into your field work as a student, it's very overwhelming. And I think this is something that like you know about, but when all the other things come into play with it, like treatment planning and getting everything ready for yourself, I think this is something you kind of learn as you go. Um, and you just, you, you get to, it's, you get a little bit more um, knowledge as you go, at least for me, this was my experience. So we wanted to cover this topic because it can be relatively confusing, especially for individuals who don't really have a healthcare background. This paired with the overwhelming and traumatic experience throughout the recovery process makes it even more difficult to navigate for stroke survivors and their care partners. And I think that health literacy really plays into that too. So to start off, we have acute care. This is where somebody would be placed 24 hours after the onset of their stroke, and they would be there with between five to seven days. The goal here is for patients to be medically stable and they will undergo stroke assessments to determine the location of their stroke, potential deficits, and what the initiation of the recovery process will be. And then next we move into subacute settings. Yes, Deb. Can we talk a little bit about the emergency room and the critical care units too. It's part of this acute care piece because sometimes people Absolutely. end up in the emergency room and they stay in the emergency room until they either go home or maybe get admitted into the acute care um, a room. Um, sometimes they spend some time in the emergency room because doctors and physicians assistants and nurse practitioners and nurses are trying to figure out what's going on with them and they experience a lot of testing so maybe some MRIs or CT scans sometimes physical and occupational therapy ends up in the emergency room it's all part of a a, a collaborative process to help determine what is actually going on with that person and then sometimes People have very severe strokes that after some of that testing, they end up in the critical care units, like an intensive care unit. And sometimes people mm -hmm. are in a coma. They're on ventilators, helping them breathe. There's, you know, sometimes they're waiting surgery. They're determining if they need to have surgery. So there's a lot that goes on in that acute care setting. And that I, I love when you were talking about it. It's, it can be very overwhelming. We actually had um, Bridget, uh, a care partner on the podcast a few months ago, who talked about that, the, the amount of overwhelm that she experienced as a care partner. And then also that her husband experienced because he had aphasia too. So he had some, cog he had some cognitive deficits and he also had some aphasia and it was very overwhelming for him. And so it's a busy time because they're working quickly to try to come up with a diagnosis and figure out what medically 
needs to be done to intervene to help sustain that person's life and help them become medically stable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was definitely a common theme within the articles that we've been finding too. Overwhelming is a buzzword for this Mm -hmm. topic. Well, you know, when you mentioned health literacy, when care providers, when healthcare providers have been working in healthcare for so long, like I, we start to think this is like common everyday knowledge and language. And we kind of talk that way sometimes. And when you're in a hurry, because something is important that it needs to be addressed right now, you know, based on a person's need at the time, it can be easy to forget to converse with family members and loved ones and take the time to explain what's going on try to determine if they understand what you're saying. It's it's a lot that goes into a short amount of time. And some, yeah, I just want us to remember that what we think is everyday common isn't to other people who have not had that experience. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that's really important to remember. Mm-hmm. I agree. And In my experience in the acute care hospital, um, the occupational therapist I was with did a really good job of educating patients and their caregivers on everything that we were doing when we were in the room. Sometimes it's nice to be that ancillary provider. You get to hear all of the medical professionals, what they're talking about, what they're saying to the person, and you can watch for people's reactions. And then you can talk to them. Do you, do you understand what was just said to you? What does that mean to you? And you can really provide a valuable service for them, kind of being like that interpreter in a way. You act as their advocate. Yeah, 100%. That is, mm-hmm. that is advocacy. Mm-hmm. You're, all, you're like a liaison too between them and sometimes the the healthcare, the other healthcare professionals. I know I've had conversations with nurse practitioners and doctors where I will tell them something in, about the person that they were just talking to, where they, they don't have this or that. And they say, how do you know? And I said, well, I just asked them, I heard what you were saying to them. I asked them about this. So this part may be a problem for them. And it's just, it's part of our skills as occupational therapy practitioners and physical therapists as well from our many years of interacting with people and the way that we learn about things. Awesome. So we started at the top. You you discussed the intensive care units or the ICU, and then people potentially will move down to a step-down unit and be in the acute care for up to seven days. And then next we go to subacute settings. So there are a few different options here. People can go to inpatient rehab facilities. So an inpatient facility is a hospital that specializes in intense rehab. The ideal length of stay is no more than two to four weeks, but that can vary um, depending on deficits and um discharge planning. Expectations 
are determined based off medical complexity and depending on, like I said, deficits, insurance companies give a patient a set number of days. So they get a length of stay, a projective length of stay while they're there. And that is the goal that practitioners try to meet. So patients will see receive up to three hours of therapy, five days a week here. And I think that three hours doesn't sound like a lot at first, but when you see somebody going through three hours of therapy, five days a week, it is really, really intense for somebody that has experienced something like a stroke. Absolutely. Can we talk about medical complexity for a minute? What that might absolutely what might that look like for for some people? Um, I think that you definitely have to account for past medical history. So somebody coming in with a stroke doesn't necessarily only have a stroke. So they could have comorbidities such as diabetes, um, any mental illnesses. Um, and could be like heart problems or breathing problems and things like that. So anything that is in the person's past or things that are impacting them, their function is what determines the medical complexity. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then as another subacute facility, there are skilled nursing facilities, and these are a less intense level of care. So patients will see, receive up to two hours of therapy, five times a week. And in the articles that we were finding, caregivers and stroke survivors perceived that um, the inpatient rehab facilities were going to be more beneficial for them. They heard kind of like through the grapevine that like a skilled nursing facility might not be as helpful. So that was something that was impacting caregivers decisions for um, care after discharge too. How, how could we help people know what to look for or what questions to ask when determining where their loved one should go or advocating for their loved one for the, the best rehab possibility for them? I think kind of preparing the stroke survivor and their caregivers on the difference of level of therapy between an inpatient rehab such as an MRU versus a skilled nursing facility. And I think when you're in the room and evaluating these patients, um, you can tell pretty quickly which setting they're going to thrive in. But obviously it's um, voicing that to the patient and their caregivers is what's important because a lot of people don't know the difference like we do. Mm -hmm. And for listeners, MRU is a medical rehab unit, which is inpatient rehab. Yeah, education. And helping them understand, I, yes, 100%. And that was shown in the articles that you provided to us. I also think asking them 
or trying to get a better picture of what they were like before the stroke. So were they somebody that was necessarily healthy? Were they active? Um, because I think that definitely plays a part in their potential and especially their motivation during recovery. So you have to think about the person and are they somebody that will thrive off of three hours or somebody that might do better with two hours and not so intense. So something that I'm thinking about as a person who has had the opportunity to work in multiple types of facilities is not everybody in a subacute rehab facility knows how to work with a person who's had a stroke. Okay. And I think maybe, I mean, maybe this is for rehab managers to make sure that you hire people who have varied knowledge, varied types of knowledge and levels of skill so that you can serve people who've had a stroke if you want, if you, if your facility is going to accept a person who's had a stroke. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I know, Tracy, do you have a thought about that? I was actually going in a different sort of direction talking about what Madison was mentioning about you just know when you're working with someone at the acute level where they're probably going to be a better fit for their rehab. I mean, there was that medical complexity, discharge disposition, the ability of the care partners. I think that's something that we all really need to have a very good handle on working with someone, what is the ability of the individual whom they will be discharged home to? So sometimes they may need a longer rehab stay to get those services in place because maybe this individual will require additional lifts to facilitate mobility, things such as that when you're dealing with care with a care partner that may not be able to do that. In regards to your question, Deb, about ensuring, I think that goes within our our entry-level skills as occupational therapists, and it comes down to our ethics and making sure that we are capable and able in continuing our educations to address the needs of the individuals that we're working with. So every state has CEU requirements, so that falls down to the competency requirements, the professional ethics of the individual that they're working that is actually providing that care to ensure that they are at the top of their game. Mm -hmm. And if they're not, it's really nice when you work in a setting where you have peers who are willing to help you learn. So I know that's I've been very fortunate over the course of my career to work with people who will help me learn how to do something or help me if I'm not fully confident so that we can all, so that we can help the person the best way so that they can become as independent as possible. And meeting the needs of the client. I don't remember if it was Hannah or Madison who said that, what are the goals of that individual? Because everyone views when someone has a stroke differently. Mm -hmm. So it's good to understand what biases may be in place, may be present with the individuals that you're working with. Yeah. 
Tracy, you just said something that I wanted to go back to. What'd you say before you answered my question? Man. Right now, for everyone listening to the podcast, Deb and I are both looking at each other with very wide eyes. You started with you were going in a different direction. Yeah. You know, oh, talking about um Madison was saying that she that you you just know as a clinician working with someone in acute care. I gave some examples on how would you just know? Mentioning the ability levels of the care partners, the, the medical complexity of the individual. Yes, thank you. Knowing the differences of when they would be appropriate for an inpatient rehab facility and when maybe a subacute environment would be more appropriate. I mean, we haven't, I mean, another area to think about is we haven't talked about insurance what's available. I mean, there's, and there's, there's so many, so many directions that this conversation could go in right now that I want to make sure that we're sticking to the topic for our continuum of care and our focus on the care partners and the individuals who've experienced a stroke. Yes. That's why I wanted to circle back around to this because I think there is a stigma around subacute rehab because they're in long-term care facilities. And sometimes people think that their loved one isn't going to get the best rehab possible there. But when you were talking about discharge disposition, patient personality, the caregiver at home, what are the abilities of, of the people? Are Is there someone at home or does this person live alone? There are so many different things to think about that sometimes a subacute rehab setting is a better way to go because they can work with a person, a care partner longer, give them the time that they need to help them understand, to help them gain the skills that they need to, to carry on this recovery process. Because oftentimes recovery doesn't just, isn't magically complete when a person has reached a level of recovery where they're currently not experiencing changes. I don't even want to use the P word because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. people do recover. They continue, they can continue to recover and often they do. I've always in a perfect world as a clinician working across the adult continuum, I've always thought that individuals who have experienced a more severe stroke sometimes may be better in a subacute placement earlier and then into an inpatient rehab facility. Mm -hmm. Because as what Deb says, the course of recovery is so different. And oftentimes the other medical complexities need to be managed. And then that individual can further and more appropriately or efficiently or effectively participate in that more intense inpatient rehab facility because you guys are very right in regards to the length of stay with an inpatient rehab that there's more benefits that can continue but that's not currently how the regulations are with the Tracy's pie in the sky of saying maybe they could go to subacute for a little while and then into an inpatient rehab facility and then to home because one of the other things with the inpatient rehab facility is there's a, a, a strong lean and a need for that discharge plan to be home. And sometimes when an individual 
has a very severe stroke, that home plan may not be in two to four weeks. That home plan may be months after they've transitioned from inpatient rehab to a subacute facility. And with everyone and what you guys are talking about, which is so spot on, the perception that subacute means they're never going to leave and that they're going to transition over to a long-term care. And that's not the truth, but that is the perception that's out there. And that's where the hesitancy and the resistance goes. Because again, not everybody is appropriate and can tolerate, as Hannah said so eloquently, it's intense. Three hours a day, five to six days a week is intense. I mean, by the time they get down to one therapies, they get back for lunch, they want to sleep for three hours, but then they got to keep going. So it's, it's a lot. And then all the time outside of rehab that they're not with the physical therapist, they're not with the occupational therapist, they're not with the speech language pathologist. Those clinicians have given the clients things that they should be doing when their loved ones are visiting them at night. So it's not just those three hours. It's the whole thing. And then we have, with the inpatient rehab, then we have the nursing component that we haven't even talked about because there's such a heavy emphasis on education in the rehab center to make sure that that individual can go home. It's not happening during the day hours of the morning and the afternoon because the clients are with therapies. So nursing is obviously the 24-hour nature of nursing. So they're doing more second shift trainings. And again, medical complexity. We could have new onset diabetes we're dealing with. I mean, without listing, we could have multi-system issues going on that they need to be stabilizing. And that's what's really that medical complexity component and why they need a physiatrist oversight. So really when people are thinking about what's the difference with inpatient rehab versus a subacute setting, you need that oversight of that physiatrist with their nurse practitioners and their PAs that are working with them to make sure that they avoid a rehospitalization. Excellent point. And one of the, the differences that I've noticed over the course of my career between inpatient rehab and subacute is the continuous interaction among the survivor, the caregiver, all of the healthcare providers with the physiatrists, the nurse practitioners, the PAs that are working there. It's it's like a family type of interaction where um, there's just constant communication, which is very different from subacute. Sometimes you have to wait for the doctor to come in or you have to communicate with the nurse and indicate why you want them to address this or you have to wait for a family meeting or a, a care plan meeting. I think we covered that pretty good. What do you think? I think so. So what's next? We just wanted to touch on the outpatient and home health aspect of the continuum of care before moving on a little bit further. So an outpatient clinic is a facility where somebody will go to, and then the treatment intensity is determined at the evaluation. So the therapist decides how often a patient will be seen. They could be seen one to three times a week and sessions can be provided in person and virtually now, which is a very interesting thing 
to be a part of, I think. And then home health services are provided in the home and multiple disciplines visit. For patients that qualify for home health, they must be unable to leave their home. So somebody could have nursing come visit them, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech, case managers, um, and other physicians coming to them. So they'll see a lot of different people in home health. But I think that kind of covers the continuum. Yeah. So with both of those, I just want to interject one thing, of course. Absolutely. A lot of there's, there's a heavy expectation on the therapeutic interventions that are provided in both of those settings that there is some home carryover that there is some carryover of a program during that non clinic time or a non visit time. So people it, the expectation is that people become a little bit more independent and start taking a little bit more control over their recovery process because yeah. one, two or three days a week often isn't enough for that neuroplastic change to occur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in my first fieldwork experience at the outpatient clinic, my fieldwork educator did an amazing job right off the bat when we were working with somebody with a stroke, like during the evaluation to, it was of course overwhelming because it's an only an hour. You can only get so much done. You can only learn so much about a person to develop goals. But that was one thing that she made sure she would talk about with them is that you're only coming here two to three times a week, but the work that you put in outside is really what matters and what's going to impact the change that you want to see so Mm -hmm. that was really awesome to see I had a very similar experience in the neuro-based outpatient clinic that I was at and the occupational therapist I was with would give every single patient homework so they'd get a home exercise program and I think it was really important too to ask each patient, what do you have at home? Um, Even if it is just like a pencil or a marker lying around where they can work on their fine motor skills or a rubber band, we would try and think of anything that they can utilize during their home exercise program. I always like to call them home activity programs because people, they need to understand that that recovery is happening the entire time. So everything that someone is engaged in can be therapeutic. And I think that if we can tap in at each level across the continuum, if in, if the individuals we're working with and their, and their caregivers or care partners understand that, I think they, all of them would be more um, motivated for lack of a better word right now to be engaged and understand that their involvement is paramount throughout the rehab recovery process from the individual who experienced it to the family who was living through it, the family and whoever the friends in the family who are there supporting their loved one, that they know that they're just as equal a part and that they need to be asking those questions and getting those activities that they could be doing and 
working with that individual throughout normal engagement. It's so critical to be tapping in and making sure that those repetitions are being done to make those permanent changes in the brain. Mm -hmm. And I think another thing too is that people don't realize that a lot of things that they could do at home would count as therapy. Yes. Um, <laughs> just like our, our one patient, um, we told her, you know, write all your Christmas cards this year, um, practice handwriting. So just things like that. Again, motivating this individual to want to do their Christmas cards. Mm -hmm. And that's getting a little, that's good. Good stuff. That is good stuff. <laughs> That came up in one of the articles, too, where a care partner was uh, recorded as saying something like, I'm worried that I might do too much for them. So care partners are thinking about this. And I always bring in the real world scenario. So sometimes people do need help because of scheduling the amount of time that it takes to complete a task. But always giving yourself an opportunity during the day as the survivor to remember that all of the things that you are participating in, you are participating in, you know, it is changing. Even the thinking and the problem solving part of how am I going to complete this? How much time do I need? All of that is working towards uh, neuroplastic change. And to emphasize the other roles that those care partners hold, because they're not just, and I don't mean the word just, there are so much more than a care partner. There's so many other parts of their lives that they need to be maintaining and their role and that relationship that they have with the individual that they're providing care for. That's something that we as occupational therapists need to be focusing in on as well making sure that they still have those valued roles and that they still have the dynamic that they had prior to the event that brought them into this new role as a caregiver. Yeah. Viewing them as that, that's why I love the term care partner and uh, not caregiver, because I, agree. I think it, it can, in a, especially in an intimate relationship, it can really change that dynamic and people need intimacy still always and we don't we don't want to be the person that helps create a division there we want to actually be a facilitator for continued intimacy and and closeness and maybe helping people explore different ways that they can still achieve that closeness and have that strong relationship in spite of this thing that has happened for everyone listening, we're all shaking our heads in agreement to that statement. Oh, we are. Practicing universal design for learning principles. All right. Where do we want to go next? So the topic that we wanted to get into next um, after going over the continuum of care is stroke survivors' perspectives on the post-acute care experience. And we found a really nice study that 
looks at stroke survivors' perspectives on post-acute care. And these participants in the study were interviewed uh, along with their care partners. And one of the questions that they were asked was, were they involved in selecting their post-acute care setting? And many of them responded with, I don't know, or that's up to the hospital staff, that's up to the doctor. And then another question that they were asked was if they were satisfied with the extent of their involvement in the selection of a post-acute care setting. And the majority of them were not and stated that they wish they knew more to make a better decision for themselves. So as OTs, this is where we kind of come in and try and educate and advocate for our patients and their families on which setting would be most appropriate for them specifically. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that, Madison. Mm -hmm. There really is. I'm obviously having um, you guys as in my classes before, we've talked about the medical model and who the perception of who's in the driver's seat in the medical model. And that's something really we've talked about advocacy already, that our role as being an advocate as an occupational therapist is vital in those conversations that you just went through right now. And that, that response to that very um, touching report of what individuals, how individuals feel that they are involved and engaged in their care. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas? We throw around this word, educate, 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 educate. Well, personally, I'm not the kind of person that can, I can't take in a ton of information verbally given to me over time. I mean, I don't even know if it lasts for a minute. I'm not sure. So I'm wondering, we do a lot of talking with our, mm -hmm. the people that we're working with, but I'm wondering if you have any ideas about what, things that we could do differently, something simple that we could do differently that might improve that process and helping, helping the survivors understand what we're looking at, what we're, what needs to happen next in that process. Yeah, definitely. I think a really good way to help educate these patients and their families, because like you said, we do a lot of talking and even in my own personal experience, like going to a doctor's office and just them spewing information at you and you leave and you're like, what just happened? <laughs> so, yeah. um, I think providing a handout on the different types of settings and the benefits of each is something that could really be beneficial to patients and caregivers because um, it's something they can go back to. And also providing the individuals, the, the family and the friends with tools for how they could make those decisions. Nursing home compare, 
results of state surveys, things such as that, where they can start to make those decisions on their own, and then they can have a metric. Now, nursing home compare isn't everything, but it, it's a good start. So that's something to keep in mind when individuals, you're working with individuals. Mm -hmm. And in my experience in the acute care hospital, this is where social workers play a huge role as well. Mm -hmm, definitely. There's also home health compare. So there are tools that are out there for individuals to seek out information. I'm starting to see an opportunity for collaboration here with um mm -hmm. with with all every every team member who wants to be included actually but where we actually work with all the professionals to determine what does somebody need to know in order to make an informed decision and then work with the whoever the marketing person is to create a, a folder with meaningful information in it that we can give to people so that they can make their decisions rather than health professionals driving a decision to be made based on, you know, X, Y, or Z that, that needs to happen. All insurance is saying they have to leave. So maybe that would help. Somehow there's got to be a way for us to help initiate this sooner so that informed decisions can be made and people can actually be a part of their care. These discussions have to happen well before anybody is actually in a situation in crisis in an acute care setting. Yeah. So these are the decisions and the discussions to be having when people are making their decisions on their insurance. Mm, yes. Really understanding what's available and what are the requirements and really having a good handle on what is available, which that is once we didn't get into any of the support for the care partners yet, but every state has different programming available. And again, that's a shout out to our occupational therapy friends and our social work friends that making sure that everyone is aware of what is available, where you are practicing. And that comes down to more of that, um, making sure that, that you're working at the top of your license and you're aware of what's available making sure that you can place those seeds and get some information for individuals who have had, you know, experienced a head injury per se. I know we're talking specifically about stroke, um, but, you know, an acquired traumatic head injury, there are support, there's support for individuals, mm -hmm. different states, Medicaid type support. One of my favorite occupational therapists that I ever worked with, Donna, she's no longer with us, but um, she did the coolest things with her, her patients that she was working with. And I will never forget one day, um, I don't know, maybe it was her or somebody else. It might, it might've been uh, Bonnie. So I don't know, you know, if Bonnie's listening, I don't want, I don't want the person who really did this to think that I totally forgot about them, but it, it was an amazing team. At this facility and they had their person on the laptop looking at different assisted living facilities doing this beautiful tour and that was their ot session because this person was being encouraged to go to assisted living they, they really didn't want to you know people don't want to give up their home and so they just went through this virtual tour and inquiry process they compared and contrasted and had a whole conversation and it really helped 
the person feel a little bit better about some change that was coming. I love that. Me too. So going back to the study, although many of the participants were not satisfied with their involvement in the selection of a post-acute care setting, most participants were satisfied with their rehabilitation experience itself, which was a positive thing to come out of that. Um, whether it, they went to a subacute or an MRU setting. That's interesting. That makes me wonder if people become anxious in that not knowing. You know how mm-hmm. we all, I think we all feel that way when we don't know what's coming next. And there's no guarantee. You don't know who, you don't know who's going to be there. You don't know how you're going to be treated. You know, there's a lot of fears involved in that. And I, I think Definitely. part of our society is like, we, for some reason, we're very afraid to make a, a wrong choice. I make this in air quotes because we think that everything is so final and permanent. Yeah. And I think not even just the not knowing, but just from this article, not having a voice in their care too, probably increases that anxiety even more. And um, the one of the things that I read in the article was that patients said that as they learned more about their diagnosis, it helped increase their active role in their treatment planning. So like you said earlier, Deb, the earlier, the better, like starting the education right off the bat. Yeah, so maybe the lack of control is another Mm -hmm. piece, because that's what I heard when you said not having a voice. And yes, that article did allude to that. And it's amazing how much better we can help somebody feel by helping them understand and giving them the time to reflect or the time to ask questions. And that was, was that in that article where... Some people had commented on having a therapist, the difference between having a therapist who listened to you and one who didn't seem to have the time for you. Was that in that article? Yeah, I believe so. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a lot of it has to do with our own perceptions of how people are treating us as well. So I don't, I don't want to just throw any practitioner under the bus. And these are skills that can be learned. Sometimes they're harder to learn, but just sitting down and taking the time. And I know there was somebody who commented on their therapist who kept looking at them, but turning away and not paying attention to them. And I have seen that happen in a clinic and I've probably been guilty of that myself, not intentionally. Right. And a lot of times therapists have to work with two or more people at once. And it can be very challenging if you have people of different, differing abilities and interests. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's definitely a skill that has to be learned over time is giving each individual like the undivided attention that they need and deserve even if you're working with multiple different people at once, not easy. That's not easy. And I think something that we acquire as we gain some experience over the course of our careers is you start to learn that it is that interaction and that 
rapport that you are able to build with the people you're working with that opens the door for them to be able to receive the information that you're sharing, possibilities for discharge that may, because oftentimes with a stroke, discharge looks different than what your previous life was. And we need people to be able to be open to doing things differently. And and I do want to acknowledge that it's very difficult to build that rapport and spend that quality time with a person when you have a, an unrealistic productivity requirement. Yes, I agree. That's my version of a swear word. The other P word? <laughs> the other P word. So the first one was plateau. <laughs> Uh, yes, productivity. Enough productivity. <laughs> so the one other thing that the article talked about is the five factors that are needed to decide where the individual is going to receive their post-acute care. So those five factors include the individual's physical abilities, the severity of the stroke, which both of which we touched on a little bit prior, health insurance coverage, that's a huge one, the need to expedite discharge from acute care, and lastly, the availability of a post-acute care bed. So maybe can you give some examples of each one of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the individual's physical abilities, um, this is goes back to what we touched on earlier with can that individual partake in the intensive three hours a day therapy that an inpatient rehab provides? Or based on that individual's abilities, would they be better in a subacute care setting? And that kind of ties in with the severity of the stroke as well. And then health insurance coverage, that's a really tough one because um, a couple of times in my experience as the OT and PT team, we recommend an MRU for someone come to find out that from social work, um, their insurance will only cover subacute. So you have to also, as a therapist, know that things might not go to plan and you got to kind of shift your focus onto, okay, this is what their insurance will cover and let's find the best fit based on that. Um, the need to expedite discharge from acute care. So as long as the person is medically stable, if that hospital needs to expedite the process to get the person into a post-acute care setting, I feel like that's very, that it varies based on the hospital's needs as well. Um, and that also goes into the availability of a post-acute care bed because finding an available bed can also take days. Yeah, there are some moving parts and pieces mm -hmm. that all need to align. I find this interesting knowing where 
both of you went on your field works and then knowing the area where we are currently conducting this call from, we are, it's an urban area. So let's throw in some other things that might, we haven't even talked about. What about if there aren't inpatient rehab facilities available? I mean, there in our area, there are two to my knowledge mm -hmm. in an urban area. So what about middle America? that may not have that, or that their services are provided, they have it, it's available in the state, but it's seven hours away. So we really need to be speaking to, as Madison said, making the best fit that's possible and available. And that's why we as clinicians need to understand, again, to beat this drum, what's available in where you are, and maybe, facilitate some of that collaboration that Deb was talking about with DME providers, durable medical equipment providers, making sure that they have things available on hand so we can meet that need of that acute care hospital to discharge the person today. So, but they're, you know, the family has elected this individual is going to go home. They're not a safe transfer. They need a lift. We have to make sure that those components are in place before they're needed and not after the fact. So we have to be proactive as a medical system to make sure that that's available for individuals. And that when the person goes in home care, that suddenly they realize that the individual, the option is bed bound at this point because we don't have a safe transfer option for this individual. And then we all know how that would affect their, their, their overall trajectory in rehab if they're unable to safely get out of bed. Yeah. You know, you're making me think about sometimes because these decisions need to be made so incredibly quickly and you've already talked about including care partner abilities and all, all of these pieces and parts that sometimes are missed, they're overlooked in getting a person out the door. And, you know, anytime a lift is involved, you have got to have some serious training. You cannot just show somebody how to do it. They need to practice it themselves. And I say this as a clinician who used equipment for a long time. It took me a bit to get comfortable with it. You know, I didn't just do it once and say, okay, yeah, I'm going to be the team leader here. No, I needed to do that a few times with help. And then you, you bring this giant piece of equipment into a home. What is the home setup? Like this is all of our OT skills coming into play here. You know, when you're talking about middle America, people living in a place where the nearest inpatient facility is seven hours away. Well, what are the family dynamics? Are these people that are used to being with each other consistently, are they able to get there if it's seven hours away? How much time can they spend with them? What would be the effects of them not being with their family? Maybe that would be more detrimental than being in a, a subacute facility that has, um, you know, a lower expectation. I don't know, but there's a lot to think about. And when when people are in the midst of this chaos, it can be hard to make that decision. And, and I think sometimes we can 
push people into a, a place where they become bitter and angry because we're forcing them to make a, a, a good decision quickly that they might not feel they have any options or maybe they maybe they thought that they understood something and that, that's different than what they understood. I mean, there's just so much to think about. I think there needs to be a sixth factor on here because we spent more time thinking or talking about what the patient needs and that's not even listed on here. So, mm -hmm. yeah, this is, this seems to be all about what the facilities need. Yikes. Mm -hmm. And that, that came up in one of the articles that you guys provided looking at things more from what the client needs and not what our system, like our system really feeds itself. Mm. Absolutely. And here we are back to a discussion of medical model versus social model. Yeah. And mm -hmm. clearly there are people who care because we do and we have listeners, you know, and we all care. And I think a lot of it goes back to finding a simple solution and implementing, just implement one simple solution. Don't change the world. You're not going to change the world. But is there one thing that I can do better today? And if I forget, because I've been in a habit of doing my profession the way I've been doing it for X number of years, whoops. I'm going to remember to do better tomorrow and make a reminder for yourself or prepare yourself so that you just over time uh, make a change and provide meaningful care to people. The one thing that I wanted to um, highlight from this article, I think it's something that can be helpful for practitioners is that they described both ends of the spectrum for the care partner's relationship with providers. So this article didn't just describe all of the poor experiences people had, but they also talked about um, some of the good experiences they had. So they explained their relationships from being like disconnected and collaborative, collaborative with the providers. Um, so some care partners felt that they were ignored by providers, that they were given inconsistent information because of lack of communication amongst interprofessionally, and there was a lack of insufficient time. But then other partners felt that they played a more active role in decision making um, and that they were regularly updated. So like you said before, people have different experiences and I think different practitioners, providers handle things differently. So the other thing that I think would be important for practitioners to remember is that the care partners are all different too. And they described care partners from being passive and active participants in recovery. And I think as OTs that we're really good at reading the room and kind of getting an idea of what people are like when you're talking to the um, stroke survivor or their family members. So I, if we can see that somebody might be a little bit more passive, that they're not asking as many questions, they're kind of just like nodding along, I think that we should remember that we should be asking them questions 
Do you have any concerns? What's it like at home? What's the environment like? How do you feel you can best help your um, your partner and everything? So those two things I think were pretty cool to see from the article, different ways to look at. Yeah. I love what you're saying too, because that ties into how we learn a teaching and learning concepts when we're going to mm -hmm. OT and OTA school. Part of part of our education is learning how to determine if somebody knows something, giving them, providing the, the multifactorial way of, what am I trying to say here? Providing multimedia opportunities for providing information, but also taking some time to give people the opportunity to practice what you want them to know or communicate back to you their understanding and I mean, that is all part of the collaborative process right there. Is that, you're still talking about the, um, that one article that we've been talking about, right? The Yeah, the impact yes. of interactions with providers yeah. on stroke kids. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. I liked how it gave you both ends of like the spectrum. Mm -hmm. People that had not so great experiences, but people that did have good experiences because I think those can lead by example right there so yeah well everybody's perspective matters absolutely we've been mentioning a lot about collaboration and making sure that the interprofessional team is working at their optimum what were some findings that you had madison and hannah in regards to what should we be doing as clinicians are you asking in terms of our fieldwork experience or findings from the articles? Findings from the articles. You were talking, I'm speaking specifically to the article number one, development implementation of standardized assessment batteries across the continuum of care, because we're all talking about it. And yes, electronic medical records are, it's going in the right direction. I'm happy to report that. But it, let's be honest, it's got a long way to go. Sorry, electronic medical providers out there. But the intent is good. It's just making sure that each medical system is actually using it to their to their optimum. So what did this study talk about with the standardization of assessments and things? So it talks about the barriers of administering the assessments such as the productivity standards, time to administer, requiring the equipment and space necessary, and if you can believe it, insurance, <laughs> yet again. That is kind of like an oxymoron, isn't it? Yep. So when we're talking about assessments, are we talking about certain standardized? We like standardized because they they tend to show us more consistency over time. Um, are we talking about like manual muscle testing and goniometry and strength testing using a, a dynamometer for grip? Is that what mm -hmm. we're talking about? Yeah. So the article that Tracy is mentioned is... It goes into particularly uh, standardized assessments for ADLs and upper extremity function. 
and how those are used along the continuum of care. So the evaluations that are used to assess upper extremity function throughout the continuum include things like manual muscle testing, grip strength, and the modified Ashworth scale. And then evaluations used across the continuum to assess ADL function that were discussed in the article include the modified Rankin scale and the AMPAC daily activity. Use of standardized assessments came to us because of reimbursement and regulation regulations. So I really find it sort of um, problematic that um, insurances are having a problem with all of this and, and um, because the, you know, the regulation stated we had to have standardized assessment. So it's, it's, um, it's just interesting. That's all I'll say. It's the oxymoron. It is. Well, I think some of our assessments, they don't account for the very minute changes that occur here, here with a person who has had a stroke. I mean, some of, sometimes those changes are so small like if somebody gains three degrees of active range of motion in a joint, it may not make a difference in their ability to be independent or not, but three degrees over a year, if it's three degrees a month over a year, that's a significant improvement. So I just, I think that we don't always have a way to measure those changes. No, well, we have talked. I, oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say in regards to the standardized assessments, it's just one part of what we do. And really, I think that from the across the continuum perspective, we as providers need to do a better job providing that information and making sure that the plans are being communicated to the next level of care. That was the problem I thought of when you mentioned electronic medical records, because that was a conversation that I heard so many times, you know, this facility isn't communicating with this facility, isn't communicating with this facility. And it's very difficult to get access to those records as the person who's inquiring. Even when we had access to some of those records, they seemed inconsistent to like what we were seeing upon evaluation. So like in the inpatient rehab, when we were looking at what they were, what their functional abilities were leaving the hospital and then what we would see going in that morning, it could be night and day sometimes. It was so not even just the lack of communication, but good communication too. Yeah, and accounting for people's fluctuating abilities in a, in a mm -hmm. time like that. And the context that the abilities are occurring in, because that's really what you're seeing. And I'm speaking from my years of, in home care. How they left the inpatient rehab facility or the subacute facility is completely different than how they looked in their own context, mm -hmm. in their own homes. So that's really something that in regards to justifying services, that's something that um, we really need to emphasize. Mm -hmm. You know what else? The subjective report. For some reason, a person's subjective report is dismissed oftentimes. And I think 
a person's subjective report is important. You can learn a lot about it, them, um, like about, not about it. You can learn a lot about them and their experience over time. And if somebody every day is feeling discouraged, they just don't feel like they're doing enough. Well, what are we learning about this person? Maybe they need, maybe they're depressed. Maybe they need a neuropsych consult. Maybe they need somebody to help them process what has gone on. Maybe this is who they are over, you know, over the course of their life. Maybe they tend to have that sort of a, a perspective on things. Or if you're working with a person who was very frustrated at the beginning and as they start to improve their disposition changes, then you can see this change. And to me, that is quantifying change in an un kind of an unquantifiable way. Yeah. And I think you mentioning self-report is so important, especially during acute care evaluations, when you're asking someone about their support from family or friends, um, when you're asking them about their home environment, it's interesting to see what they say about all of those things and how it would impact um, their treatment going forward. For sure. Absolutely. You know, I, I know sometimes people have a negative propensity towards life and they think they're never getting better, never getting better. And that's where these standardized assessments can really come into play because you can show people these measurement changes over time, or if they're really subtle, but your clinical eye is noticing maybe a movement pattern is changing. So you know, if you have this person who has abnormal muscle tone and they're moving in that stereotypical pattern, but you're seeing that pattern break up a little bit, video recording how a person moves could be a really powerful way of showing them so that they can see for themselves this difference in the way that they, their body looks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think all these evaluations are great tools for showing the patients their progress. One of my favorite things that we did in outpatient was the DynaVision board and patients loved seeing their reaction time uh, decrease over time. Yeah. It almost has a level of gamification to it. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting that many of these standardized assessments are very biomechanical in nature. And I think that that's something that we as occupational therapists need to be encouraging and addressing that we can be affecting change on other outcomes that aren't necessarily quantifiable in such a manner. Mm. So that's where it comes from those interviews with our care partners and our clients, having them identify what is important to them and then have them rate it and then have them complete and we work with them and then they can have a pre and a post about satisfaction. Do you have any examples of assessments that might help us get that information? I do. I'm wondering if Madison or Hannah do. Um, the dash is coming to mind. I don't know if that is, does that um, look at Dash is excellent from an outpatient perspective. Definitely. Definitely. That stands the for... 
sorry, Tracy, I know you're dying to say what I want you to say. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. What is, I'm, I'm going to look up Dash. Well, while Debbie's doing that, we'll go ahead and talk about the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. That was the first one. But since we were more talking about towards the end of said continuum, mm -hmm. there are many tools that are out there. I know that's not the focus of this podcast, but what I wanted to talk about was that we as occupational therapists have such a broad scope that we really need to be addressing beyond the activities of daily living. And really what we're talking about is that health management really that's what we're that's where this is at do you guys agree yeah ability to manage their own their own health care yep. talks down to what debbie was saying with um giving her past colleagues credit for the investigation of an assisted living those are all things that fall within our scope of practice and that we as clinicians have to be comfortable and advocate for ourselves as professionals that those are things that we should be doing as well and not um, only those standardized assessments that we've discussed outside of the Canadian and the DASH. You know, so I love where you're going with this. And by the way, the DASH is the, uh, stands for disabilities of the arm, shoulder, and hand. One of the things that I've noticed and that I appreciated about Pete and the research that he did with Dr. Stephen Page and all of the modified constraint-induced therapy research that they have done they often incorporate the motor activity log into their research and they encourage us to use that with our clients because it can become an, a conversational tool. You can start to see, are they doing it or are they not doing it? Well, find out why. It becomes a way of investigating and continuing a conversation beyond us just saying, you need to do this every day. Well, if they're, if it's not getting done, well, what's getting in the way? And that kind of goes back around to what we were talking about, facilitators and barriers. You know, maybe people don't know what is really important to them. Maybe they don't even realize they're not using that hand or arm to complete a task until they're asked to document on it. And it's, it's another way of this whole bringing everything together, the whole teaching and learning and the, um, active participant in the recovery process piece. Which ties into, I know, a component of the articles that Madison and Hannah have dug in on. Talk about motivation. So is now a time to we maybe switch to motivation? Because I want to make sure that we give that the time that it deserves. Absolutely. So motivation is definitely something that we talk about a lot as practitioners. It plays, I think, the main role in recovery for um, individuals. So the one article that we found spoke to different providers, so not just including occupational therapists, but also physical therapists, speech-language pathologists, and physicians, and um, kind of collected their top strategies the first strategy that they found most effective was control of test difficulty, which right off the bat is grading and adapting for us. So trying to develop interventions or treatments that um, 
one the patient is involved in and finds meaningful and then also supporting them in ways that they can be successful. So I think this could have been one of the toughest skills to kind of learn when you're going through fieldwork as a student. I think grading and adapting, you definitely get better at over time. But there were some times that I was like, oh, that is a little bit too hard, but I can figure out like we can switch it up and make it more manageable and you can still complete it. So I think that's something that really empowers patients, giving them control. We talked about that, Deb. Yeah, finding that just right challenge. Because if the challenge is too great, it can be very discouraging if, if they don't have any successes at all. Mm-hmm. And if it's too easy, it's not motivating. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. times if it's too easy, people think that it's child's play. Correct. That was one thing that I really tried to do I did it in both settings, but in the outpatient setting, I think I did a little bit more, was trying to make like a conscious effort to ask the patient, like, how can I make this more challenging for you? Or is there something that I can do that will better address like your goals? So not just, um, not just asking them, they're not just kind of going through the motions of therapy. So you see them Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you keep going, you're three weeks in and they're kind of not showing as much enthusiasm anymore. I think that is probably a really good opportunity for you to start including them more. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful point of utilizing, as we've discussed, the motor activity log, any sort of, any activity that engages the individual with monitoring their own progress. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be a formal log. It can be a diary. It could be a time study. It could be anything where that individual is analyzing how they're spending their time Mm -hmm. and what's occurring in that time. It will tap into what you're speaking to, Anna. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can think of like the perfect patient to have done that with too during field work. So now I'm like kicking myself because I can just picture how beneficial that could have been to them. They definitely had trouble um, understanding the, you have to include your affected arm, not just during therapy. Now bring so, it to the party. That's what yeah. I always tell them. Bring that, bring that affected side to the party. It's gotta be yeah. engaged. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And Hannah, you will always have that for that first person. That individual will stay in your head forever. Yeah. And that individual came to your life so you can improve and everyone that you work with from on here on out will benefit from that yeah. experience. Yeah. So yeah. And we're always yeah. improving. The more we learn always. The more we learn and understand, the more we're going to think, oh man. All those people that I worked with could have benefited from this, but you can't undo the past. You know, you you cannot undo that. I think you're also speaking to another important point of involving the client in the problem solving process. Mm -hmm. Super important for recovery and neuroplasticity. Yep. Because in meaning, meaning and purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And then, so that kind of goes into the next strategy of goal setting, which we all understand, I think is OTs or future OTs. But the one thing that I found interesting was that I felt like we were able to do more collaborative goal setting in the outpatient clinic than in the inpatient clinic because of the focus of therapy in the different settings. So the focus in inpatient rehab was definitely more on functional abilities. Mm -hmm. Can you do this so you can go home? But in outpatient, we def we could kind of dig deeper into meaningful activities and um, we had more of an opportunity to do that there. Not saying we didn't do it at all in the inpatient, but there's definitely more of an opportunity there, which has its pros and cons, I think. Sure. And the assessing tools that are utilized in an inpatient rehab facility are ADL focused. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, there are many reasons why the care is, is in one direction at each mm -hmm. level. Right. You know, one thing we're, we're talking about, we're talking about post-acute care. Um, this is another Tracy term. We have the post, post, post-acute care land. So what happens with individuals when they no longer are in outpatient therapy services, or they're no longer receiving home care. I mean, we do a good job to that point, but then it's like, well, what happens thereafter? Yeah. And that's that square word, the plateau word, all that, which doesn't exist. So that's another whole area that is, a, it's burgeoning that growth of community practice that currently doesn't have reimbursement um, in the traditional fashion attached to it. Right. which is something that we as clinicians, it's a whole area that we, again, to go back to our scope of practice, that we should be engaged in seeking out ways to provide services in a manner that isn't necessarily in the straight CPT code version. Exactly. Now you're talking my language. <laughs> well, I think part of the conversation is, it, it, you know, this whole reimbursement piece, we've become so conditioned by the insurance perspective that we think that's the only way to, to um, receive compensation for our services. And we think that's the only way people would want services, but that's not necessarily true. You know, people have money to use for things that they want to use money for. And some people would prefer to pay a clinician for their expertise and skill to help them improve better. And uh, many other types of disciplines do this and they have a wonderful, they have wonderful outcomes. They're, they're, they're serving people in a way where people really take charge of their own recovery, their own life, their care. And it's another way of empowering people. Absolutely. You know, you were, that was another, go I'm ahead. Deb. Sorry. I won't, I have a note here. I won't forget. So keep going. Oh, okay. That was another one of the themes that we found in an article. One of the unmet needs was social and like financial supports. So after, after post-discharge, post-post, what'd you say? Post-post, post-acute care. <laughs> um, yeah, when life continues yeah, because, on and the care providers exactly. are all gone. Yeah. Because recovery doesn't stop there. So, so we touched on goal setting, grading and adapting. One of the other strategies was providing feedback. This is something that we also learn 
and they drill into us. But it's very important, I think, that when you provide the feedback to a patient is important and the type of feedback that you provide to them. So making sure to stay more on a positive side and not focus on things they can't do, but focusing on the things that they just did that maybe they didn't do the day before. But I liked, I think that is a strategy that I definitely utilized a lot during field work too. You know, that comes up in motor control, a theory of motor control, knowledge of performance Mm -hmm. and knowledge of results. Mm -hmm. And maybe we could take some of those parts and, and use that in our entire practice and communicate in such a way that is a more positive in a realistic way, not painting a false picture by any means. I'm not advocating for that. So the thing that I, w- I was thinking about with motivation is I do have a couple of assessment tools that I've discovered over the past year that are super helpful for finding a level of motivation. And actually, I did not find these. Oh, my God. So I do have two assessment tools that I want to refer to that I think we learned about from other Duval students, the fatigue severity scale and the Epworth sleepiness scale. So they may not focus directly on motivation, but if a person is not doing things and if if a person is very sleepy all the time, it could be a way to start the investigation further to help them have more energy to do the things that they want and need to do. And the other thing I wanted to mention is the COPM. Again, that's something that comes up a lot in uh, Steve Page's research, where people don't always know what they want. So the Mm -hmm. COPM is an excellent tool to use to help dive into their lives and finding out what's meaningful to them. And you can use that then to help parse out some important goals. Right. And reestablish hope because these individuals are now living with a new reality post their event and that post, post, post land, because that's where they're going to be eventually when they get through that continuum of care. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really glad you brought that up because sometimes I think it looks like we just drop them like a hot potato and that's not very nice. When you work for an employer, you don't have a choice. If you are a practitioner who owns your own practice, I know a lot of people are popping up with those mobile part Bs. Mm-hmm. And that's another another way to have a great client-practitioner relationship to support that person in continued recovery within the community and reintegrating into the community. It's the way to further expand outpatient services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's varied use based on state. Well, again, sometimes that's why people move away from the insurance reimbursement to a cash model. That is true. As well. Have we talked about everything? This is amazing. So I have a question. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if each of you would provide our listeners with a word of wisdom. What word of wisdom do you have to offer? And it can be to any one of the categories of listeners that we have. It can be to a survivor, a care partner, another practitioner. 
It can be within our own discipline or in another discipline. Mm. Or we can think about it like, what is your biggest takeaway from our conversation today? There's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> I I think the one thing that really stands out to me is motivation because it is such a big component. And you can really see the difference in progression when a person is motivated versus when they are not. So I think like my words of wisdom would be to, as a clinician, find with work with your patient to find what motivates them. And as a patient, try and discover that for yourself. It could be the smallest of things, but I think that really will change the progression in such a positive way and I think another words of wisdom is just I seeing the different aspects of therapy and acute care versus outpatient I really got to see clients progress in various different settings and I think like Tracy said earlier it is so easy to lose hope when you're going through something like this but it is it is possible to you know regain that function and so I think that's another word of wisdom I would say thank you I think the thing that I take away from today is it's another thing that's been drilled into our heads constantly at school but interprofessional collaboration like we saw before there were five factors that determined where a person could be going after a stroke and their needs aren't listed in that and I think that as occupational therapists we could be the source of I mean we could use advocacy like always but we could um really be that voice for our patients to other physicians, especially when it comes to deciding how, uh, um, how much somebody's like physical abilities impact them and then what like the plan is for discharge. So I think one thing to take away is to remember to just always put your patient first and make sure that their voice is being heard to all the providers and not just you. Mm. So. Sounds very inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Tracy? I want to make a suggestion to everyone providing care. Know what's available where you provide care. Know what's the most logical step. Know what people are developing in the community. So you can advocate and you, when that individual leaves you, say you're in acute care, you can give them some suggestions. This is available. They may not need it for a long time, but so that they're aware of what's available in their community. And if there's not a lot, work to establish those relationships and collaborations with community partners, because there are individuals, there are services, there are agencies out there that are not being tapped into as well as they could be. Thank you for that one. Wow, we just 
we have so much wisdom here. I think that um, you're, you're all making everything that you've all said is bringing me to this place of where I think we all do what we do as providers because we care. And I know that sometimes people, as they go on, go about their career trajectory, sometimes we care more, sometimes we care less, but caring doesn't have to be difficult. I think that one way of caring is to understand our clients, understand their care partners, and understand the people that we work with and the services that they provide. And when we take the time to care enough to understand all of that, then we are going to bring a better way of advocating, a better way of educating to our our people that we're working with. So good stuff. Thank you for this amazing conversation this was awesome thank you so much yeah Yeah, thank you excited to do it thank you for choosing noggins and neurons of course thank you so much for listening to this episode we appreciate your support and would love to hear from you ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.